Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Give him a big welcome with me. Put your hands together for Richard Lang. Hi, everybody. Thanks for coming again. Uh, uh, this is a book of short stories. Um, it's interesting because most times you only get one chance at short stories. It's your first book. After that, your publisher never wants you to do another book of short stories again, which mine didn't. Um, but after Angel Baby... Uh, I, th- that sold to the movies, and so I had a little bit of money, and uh, I didn't need to sell a book immediately, so I was able to kind of hold them over the barrel and say, uh, this is going to be my next book, and they, uh, in order to, they read a little bit, I, I, I'm halfway through another novel, and they read the first five chapters, and they wanted that, so they they let me do a second book of short stories, which I'm very grateful to them for uh, Believing in me enough to do that because they know that uh, it's not going to sell and uh, everybody says they love short stories, but then nobody buys the books. The idea is that you do the one and then you just keep writing novels because everybody will read novels and, but, you know, whatever, fuck it. I've never done what I should do in my career and, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I didn't quit my day job in order to do what, you know... Little Brown wants me to do, so I'll just keep doing what I want. Anyway, that said, I'm going to read a love story because it's uh, Valentine's Day. This is about, I think, as close as I get to a love story. Uh, It's called Instinctive Drowning Response. Mary Rose dies on Wednesday, and on Friday, Campbell dreams he was there when it happened. Tony said she passed out right after she fixed, slumped over on the couch. So that's where that part comes from. And then Tony stuck her in the shower to try to revive her. And that part's there too. In the dream, however, Campbell is with them. And Mary Rose's eyes pop open as soon as the cold water hits her and she shakes her head and yells, What the fuck's going on? Nothing, baby, nothing, Campbell replies. And it's a dream, remember? They live happily ever after. But dreams are bullshit. Dreams break your heart. When someone's dead, she's dead. And when it's someone you loved, some of your world dies with her. The places Campbell went with Mary Rose give him the creeps now. Everything that used to be fun isn't anymore. He can't bring himself to sit on their favorite bench in the park, and the tacos at Siete Mares taste like dirt. At least dope still does him right. Thank God for dope. They met at a cemetery called Hollywood Forever, where movies were shown in the summer. Friends of his and friends of hers brought blankets and Spanish cheese and splurgy bottles of wine, and everybody sprawled on the grass to stare at Clint Eastwood in a cowboy hat projected onto the wall of a mausoleum. Campbell got up to have a cigarette after the big shootout, and Mary Rose asked if she could bum one. They smoked together under a palm tree and made fun of themselves for being degenerates. Somehow they got on the subject of drugs. It was kind of a game. Ever done this? Ever done that? Mary Rose surprised Campbell when she said yes to junk. 
That shit'll kill you, he said. Well, yeah, she said. Someday. A week later, he moved into her place in Silver Lake. He hadn't had a craft services gig in over a month, and working the door at Little Joy paid mostly in drinks. Mary Rose told him not to worry about it because her dad took care of the rent. The apartment overlooked a storefront church, the kind with a hand-painted sign and a couple of rows of battered folding chairs. Services, services started every night at seven. O Dios por tu nombre, salvame, the preacher would shout. O precioso sangre de Jesús. Mary Rose liked to get stoned and lie in front of the open window and listen to the congregation send their hymns up to heaven. It's so beautiful, she'd groaned, tears hot and bright as stars streaming down her cheeks. Campbell cops for Martin now and then, and Martin hires Campbell to help him and his brothers serve food to film crews on location. They're downtown today where a sci-fi thing is shooting, and Campbell is handing out lattes and donuts to little green men and robot soldiers. He watches a couple of extras flirt and tries to see it as the sweet start of something, but isn't feeling expansive enough yet. Since Mary Rose died, anything not rhymed with sorrow is suspect. Anything gentle, anything hopeful, is as deceptive as a 13-year-old girl's daydream of love, a sugar-coated time bomb. Martin brings over one of the actors. He introduces him as Doc, but Campbell knows his real name. Everybody does. He's that famous. Doc likes to party, Martin says, and everybody knows what that means, too. Can you hook him up? An explosion goes off on the set. Campbell and Martin and Doc all jump and giggle, and Doc points out a flock of startled pigeons wheeling overhead, scared shitless. Mary Rose dies on Wednesday, and a week later her mother and sister show up at the apartment and kick Campbell out. He feels like a criminal packing his stuff, the way they watch him to make sure he doesn't take anything of Mary Rose's. I blame you, her mother says, and I hope the weight of that crushes you. He calls his own mother for money. She says no, and his dad doesn't even answer the phone. They hope he gets crushed too, but they call it tough love. Tony lets him stay at his house, the same house where Mary Rose OD'd. At night, from his bed in the spare room, Campbell hears Tony telling the story over and over to his customers. She was gone, dude, just like that. To pay his way, he makes deliveries for Tony, drives him around, washes his dishes, and takes out his trash. Then they get high and watch tattoo shows on TV. Tony is covered with tattoos, even has one with some of his dead mother's ashes mixed into the ink. You know, she thought you were an idiot, Campbell says one night when Tony's so fucked up that he's drooling. Who, Tony says. Mary Rose, Campbell says. Tony nods for a second like he's thinking this over, then says again, Who? She dropped out of USC, dropped out of Art Center, and dropped out of the Fashion Institute. And the six months her parents had given her to decide what she wanted to do with her life were almost up. If she wasn't back in school by September, they'd cut her off. Someday she was defiant, shouting, I'm proud to be a traitor to my class. Other days she was too depressed to get out of bed. She'd streamed sitcoms from her childhood, the laugh tracks taunting her as she buried her head under her pillow. Campbell worried about her when she was like this. He asked other girls he knew for advice. She needs a project, one of them said, so he bought her some clay. They sat together in the breakfast nook and made a mess sculpting little pigs and turtles and snakes. You're really good at this, Campbell told her. The scorn that flashed across her face let him know that she'd seen through him. She smashed the giraffe she'd been working on and locked herself in the bathroom with their last bindle of Mexican brown. Doc was a lifeguard before he was a movie star, and that's what he talks about when Campbell shows up at his house in Laurel Canyon with the dope he ordered. 
Martin is there too, and the three of them sit out on the deck drinking beer and trying to pretend heroin isn't the only thing they have in common. <clears throat> when someone is super close to drowning, they don't struggle or scream or splash, Doc says. What happens is their mind shuts off and pure instinct takes over. They can't cry for help. They can't wave their arms. They can't even grab a rope if you throw them one because they're totally focused on one thing, keeping their head above water and taking their next breath. What it looks like is climbing a ladder like they're trying to climb a ladder in the water. And if you don't reach them within 20 or 30 seconds, they're goners. Doc smokes his junk because he doesn't want marks, but he watches intently while Campbell and Martin fix. Afterward, Campbell lies on a chaise lounge and listens to the sounds of a party going on somewhere down canyon, music and laughter riding on the back of a desert wind. He remembers a line from a book about Charles Manson and how on the night of the Tate murders, which took place in another canyon not far from here, the same wind made it possible to hear ice cubes clinking a mile away. All of a sudden, he's uneasy, imagining a gang of acid-crazed hippies sneaking up on them. He stands and walks to the railing, his heart in his chest, his heart tossing in his chest, and scans the hillside below the house for an escape route. A coyote trail crisscrosses the slope like a nasty scar, and if he needed to, he could scramble down it to the road and be the lucky one who gets away. Mary Rose dies on Wednesday, and Campbell finds out about it a couple of hours later when Tony calls him at the bar. During the conversation, Campbell goes from staring at some LMU chick's fake ID to sitting on the sidewalk. He slaps away any helping hands and shuts his ears to all consolation. His and Mary Rose's thing was them against the world, and to let anyone in now would be a betrayal. He keeps waiting to cry, but never does. The ground doesn't open up. The moon stays where it is in the sky. When his legs work again, he gets up and walks, straight down sunset toward the ocean. He crosses PCH early the next morning and collapses on the sand. The fog is so thick he can't see the waves, only hear them pounding the shore. Good. Nothing. Anymore. Ever. The cops show up later that day after he's ridden the bus back to the apartment. The detective who does the talking is a tall woman with white, white teeth. Campbell answers all her questions with lies. He doesn't do dope, Mary Rose didn't do dope, and Tony is a fucking saint. The woman and her partner move gingerly around the place like they're afraid to touch anything. And when Campbell coughs, the woman winces and claps a protective hand over her nose. They talked about getting a dog, even went to the shelter to look for one. All they found there were psychotic pit bulls and shivering chihuahuas, and the smell and the barking drove them out after just a few minutes. Are you telling me normal people can deal with that, Mary Rose said? She liked to cook but forgot pans on the stove, left them simmering until the smoke alarm went off. Driving, too. She wrecked a couple of cars, and the one she had when Campbell met her bore the dents and scrapes of a dozen close calls, a hundred little lapses, each a new wound to lick. When she was straight, she wanted to be what she wasn't, productive and reliable, focused and stable. Some people are just made messy, Campbell told her. Not me, she replied. I was born right and got twisted. Whole days went by like that where he couldn't crack her codes. When she was happy, though, when she was high, contentment oozed from her like sweet-smelling sap. She'd name the ducks in Echo Park, dance to the music of the ice cream truck, and press her lips to his throat and leave him there. When she was happy, when she was high. Doc starts te texting Campbell at all hours, stuff like, hey man, and raging tonight? What it boils down to is he wants dope. Campbell tries to blow him off in the beginning because dealing to a movie star seems like a good way to get busted. But then his own habit gets out of hand and he has no money and Doc pays double for everything and doesn't like to party alone. 
Campbell spends one night at the guy's house, a couple more the next week, and then he's practically living there. They sleep all day and order in from expensive restaurants. Doc's name is Magic. A chef from one of the places actually delivers the food himself and puts the finishing touches on the meal in the house's kitchen. The girls who drop by every now and then aren't whores, but they'll take whatever they can get. Tall, leggy creatures, they know how to sit in short dresses and run in high heels, and all their conversations are in another language about some other world. Doc is always relieved when they leave for their parties and clubs, when it's finally just him and Campbell, and the dope comes out. One day they drive down to the strip to eat lunch. Afterward, a display of sunglasses in the window of a store catches Doc's eye. He goes inside and tries on a few pairs and makes Campbell try some too, sharing a mirror with him. Those are hot on you, he says about one pair, like Michael Pitt hot. He insists on buying them for Campbell, $700 sunglasses. Campbell wears them later that afternoon when he makes a quick run to the east side to replenish their stash. The bums look jaunty through the perfectly tinted lenses. The poor Mexican's happy. How much do you think these cost, Campbell asks Tony. What the fuck do I care, Tony replies. The sun is going down on Campbell's way back to the canyon, shining through the windshield at an annoying angle. With the new glasses, he can stare right into it and take all the glare it has to give. Mary Rose dies on Wednesday. There's a funeral two weeks later, but Campbell isn't invited. He moves out of Tony's and in with a bartender from Little Joy. Everything is good until the guy finds blood splattered in the ba- on the bathroom wall and a syringe under the couch and tells Campbell to pack his shit and go. I've lived with junkies before, he says. They're nothing but holes that can't be filled. And they steal. So it's back to Tony's, back to the house where Mary Rose died. He continues to shoot up on the couch where she shot up and shower in the tub where her heart stopped beating. It's a curse having to relive the worst over and over, trying to breathe that air. And he knows that if he doesn't get away, he's going to die too. The first step is to retake the reins of his habit, be a man about it. Without too much suffering, he manages to taper off to two hits a day. What eventually derails him is some punk at the bar who knew Mary Rose saying something stupid about, that's what happens when an angel dances with the devil. And then later, a photo he happens upon while scrolling through the pictures on his phone. It's Mary Rose, the day before she OD'd, looking like a ghost already. And he's the one who did that to her. She was just chipping when they met, and trying to keep up with him is what got her hooked. It's not a new realization, but this time it hurts enough to serve as a reason for backsliding into a three-day bender that hollows out his head and scrapes his bones clean of flesh. Oh, baby, he thinks when he finally pops to the surface on a bright fall morning when the tree shadows look like claws grabbing at the sidewalk, I can't come meet you there ever again. He and Mary Rose tried to kick together after a bad balloon of what was supposed to be tar burned going in and made them both vomit their souls into the kitchen sink. This even after they'd been warned not to buy from that dealer by someone whose brother had ended up in the hospital just from smoking this stuff. If they were so strung out they'd risk shooting rat poison, it was time to quit. They threw some clothes into a suitcase, gassed up Campbell's Toyota and headed out into the desert. Traffic on the freeway inched along and the city stretched on forever. They stopped for lunch at Del Taco, but neither of them could eat. Then the army of windmills near Palm Springs freaked Mary Rose out. The relentless turning of their giant blades suggesting an inexorability that was was at odds with her lace-winged fantasy of bucking her fate. They checked into a desiccated motel on the shore of Salton Sea. Even though the thermometer outside the office read 100 degrees, Mary Rose wanted to walk down to the beach. It was covered with fish bones and scavenging gulls and had a stench that stuck in their throats. Back in the room, they turned the noisy air conditioner to high 
and shivered under the thin blankets, unable to decide if they were hot or cold. Mary Rose clutched her cramping stomach and kicked her feet. My legs, she moaned, my legs. She sat up, lay down, and sat up again. Gritting his teeth against his own agony, Campbell limped into the bathroom and drew her a glass of water. She drank it down, but immediately vomited onto the linoleum next to the bed. Campbell placed his hand on her burning forehead and tried to mumbo-jumbo some of her pain into him. He finally passed out for a while, waking near dawn. They dragged themselves out to the car as soon as the sun bubbled red on the horizon and turned back to L.A. Tony was still up from the night before. He sold them some shit and they fixed up right then and there, marveling at how fine they suddenly felt. They never discussed the trip as a failure, only joked about what fools they'd been for thinking they could go cold turkey. Vague plans were floated to try to kick again in a month or so, this time with some Xanax or Klonopin to help with the withdrawals. But they always found some reason to put it off. Ah, damn. Here they come up the drive. Doc's agent, Doc's manager, and Doc's little brother to serve his muscle. Shoot me up quick, Doc demands, thrusting out his arm. Campbell ignores him, more worried about gathering his belongings before he gets the bums rush. He's hurrying up the stairs when they come through the door. Doc yells at them to keep the fuck away and let him be, but Campbell can hear in his voice that he's ready to get off the roller coaster. Doc's brother bursts in on Campbell as he's stuffing his clothes into his backpack. If you're not out of here in two minutes, I'm calling the cops, the brother says. When Campbell walks past him, he shoves Campbell toward the stairs, almost knocking him down. Touch me again and I'll sue, Campbell says. You're not suing anybody, you fucking loser, the brother scoffs. Doc is sitting on the sofa between his manager and his agent. He's crying like a scared little boy, and his manager is stroking his hair and telling him everything will be fine. His brother stays on Campbell's tail all the way out to the driveway. Campbell hops into his car and wills it to start on the first try. The rear window shatters as he reaches the street, making him flinch and slam on the brakes. Doc's brother drops the other rock he's holding and dares Campbell to make something of it. That very evening, evening, Campbell trades the fancy sunglasses for $50 worth of junk. Mary Rose dies on Wednesday. And a year later, Campbell marks the anniversary by returning to Echo Park, which he's been avoiding since her passing. He's a month sober, going to meetings, but struggles every day. Martin quit too, Tony's in jail, and Doc did a very public stint in rehab and emerged a hero. Campbell tosses some potato chips to the ducks, but not one of them has the energy to climb out of the water and waddle up, to the, bank, up the bank to get them. It's the third day of a heat wave, and the sun is showing everyone who's boss. Grass crumbles underfoot, palms hiss overhead, and the forsaken stand in the shadows of telephone poles waiting for buses that are always late. Mary Rose claimed that the first time she did dope was the first time in her life she felt normal. Why do you think it's called a fix, she said. Campbell didn't argue. He just liked to see her smile. They'd come down to this bench, eat paletas, and make up songs about the people passing by. She'd laugh herself silly crooning about a fat kid kicking a soccer ball, then collapse breathless into his arms. And that's when he felt normal for the first time. But who's going to believe that? Who even wants to hear it? Better to keep those memories to himself, to guard them like a treasure against time. The goddamn drip, drip, drip of days that would wash them away. Jeez, that actually brought a tear to my eye. Fuck. So if anybody has any questions, uh, I'll answer them, you know, now, or you can ask them later. Thank you.
yeah, so I guess I'll sign books now then. We're going to go to, uh, we'll go to the, uh, somewhere afterwards and I'll tell you about that when you come up. Right. Not Palermo's. <laughs> Yeah, I have a novel you know, that I'm halfway through. It's taken a long time because, uh, unfortunately, I got kind of caught up in the film thing and uh, you know, been trying to, because that's real money, and uh, yeah, I've been trying to try to get something going there, but lately uh, I've been refocusing on that. I'm hoping to get it done, and it, it won't be out for a, a couple of years, but I'll probably finish it in six months, and then it takes them a year or so afterwards but yeah it's another novel and I have I promise them that my next four books will be novels because they publish this so Uh, it's called Petty (laughs) about that like what do you prefer writing short fiction to longer pieces or uh, you know, I, my, lots of my own devices, I just write short stories. Unfortunately, you can't make a living doing that, uh, you know, if you're not a teacher or you have some other uh, means of income. And I like uh, working full-time as a writer, so, uh, so I, you know, I, I do the novels as a way to, to, you know, to keep that going. But, you know, when I finished this up, I kind of thought, well, maybe I'm finished you know, so in a couple of years, uh, maybe some more ideas will start coming for short stories. But I've actually got like two or three novels plotted out and ready to go. So I'm ready to kind of buckle down and kind of ready to buckle down and do that. So uh, we'll see what happens. You know, I mean, I, I, I didn't think I'd write this one. And then one day it just started happening. And uh, I, I spent a year I probably shouldn't have working on it. And then another year I probably shouldn't have. But... Everything is based on stuff I know, you know, whether it's uh, personal interactions with people, shit that's happened to me, or just stories that I've, that I've heard, you know, from, from people about, you know, who are in worlds that I'm not, uh, you know, privy to. So uh, every, every single thing in these stories is real. I mean, it's, the, it's weird... I've said this before, but a lot of people say, oh, you write about losers, you know, you write about dopers, you write about drunks and, you know, weirdos and stuff. But what's weird to me is, like, every one of those thoughts came out of me. And so, like, <laughs> it's almost a judgment on me because when you're, when you're inhabiting these characters, you're, you're basically like being an actor. You're living, you're coming up with this. So, like, I've said this before, but someone once told me that when you have a dream and, uh, like, say you dream of your mom, that's not really your mom. That's you making up your mom. You know, that's your projection of your mom. And that's sort of like how these stories are. So the people in there aren't depictions of real people. They're my fantasias or, or, uh, of what those people are. But, yeah, they're, uh, they're, a lot, uh, they're, they're truth-based in a lot of ways. Even there, in this one, there's like a sci-fi story. And there's a historical piece that takes place in Bordeaux in 1899. And... You know, those are, I, I consider them just as real as the ones that are written about uh, Los Angeles, just because of the process that I go through in inhabiting the characters and, and as I write the stories. What is your writing schedule? My writing schedule? Uh, 
Well, I try to do, I mean, because, you know, I had a day job for years, and it's only been like the last seven, eight years that I've been able to do this full time. So uh, I try to write two hours in the morning, and then two hours in the afternoon, and then an hour at night, and then put it, so try to do five hours a day, five days a week, and then I usually, if I don't get that all in, I'll work on the weekends, and then you have to also put in all your email and your, the publicity they want you to do and, and things like that. So that's added on top of it. But I try, you know. It doesn't always get there. This week the dog, you know, was vomiting and uh, the cable went out and the guy had to come over and tear all the wires out and I couldn't work. So, you know, things happen, but I do my best. The dog is fine. The cable is fine. Okay, you want to, I'll sign books now? Yeah. Yes, cool. So, so Angel Baker, so the, the studio picks up the, the film. What, 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 do you still have like a lot of input? Are you very involved in that process? Well, uh, I, I wrote the screenplay. The, uh, they hired me to write the first uh, a draft of the screenplay. I turned it in, and the woman who hired me to write it uh, left the next day. So that's Hollywood. So now it's there. Their option runs out in May. And there are already a couple of people in line to pick up the option. I don't know if they'll use my script. I don't really care because the real money comes from the selling of the book part. So, you know, I mean, I'm just kind of using Hollywood as much as I can to get money to write, you know, books. Yeah, I just was wondering if it was, that was part of the work schedule was you also had to Oh, no, I, that was, I didn't write fiction. That's why it's taking so long to get this second novel out because yeah. I've been working on TV pilots and I worked on the script for that. And so then I, I'm not writing fiction at that time. I'm, I'm working on the, the Hollywood stuff, which is why it's taking so long. Okay. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.